You're listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center, a space for intellectual engagement, interdisciplinary collaboration, and a vibrant graduate community at James Madison University. Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center. I'm Becca, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Nora Dunbar, Professor of Communication at University of California at Santa Barbara and expert in nonverbal communication, credibility, and deception detection. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, so let's just jump right in. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. So I'm a professor, as you said, and uh, I study deception, which means I'm curious to know how you tell when people are lying. And uh, not only do I study how to tell when people are lying, but then how do we communicate what we find to the public? So one thing I've learned about deception is that there's a lot of misinformation out there. People think crazy things like you look up to the left when you're lying and look up to the right when you're telling the truth and things like that. But it's very, it's a lot more complicated than that. There's no kind of simple answer, no Pinocchio's nose, which is what people want, right? People want the easy answer. And so it makes it more challenging to try and explain to people what we find when it contradicts with what they already believe, the myths and the stereotypes that they hold in their heads. We're lucky to have you here at JMU for the 41st Annual SCOM Undergraduate Research Conference. Could you tell me more about what you're doing while you're here? Sure. I'm visiting with students and learning about their research, talking about some of my research. I'll be giving the keynote lecture later today, and I'll be talking about some video games that I developed. And the games are meant to train people about deception and about the reasons why we're terrible at detecting deception. And the goal is really just to educate people about deception and what are the myths that are out there that we can debunk. What got you interested in the field of deception detection? I have to blame that on my dissertation advisor. So I was studying at the University of Arizona under Dr. Judy Burgoon, and she had just gotten a grant from the Army, and she was working on deception detection as a problem. She had just developed interpersonal deception theory, and she was testing that theory. And so I joined her research team and got interested in it, and we've been working together on it ever since. That was uh, in 1996 is when I went there been a while, but I've been studying deception ever since. So you mentioned that you were a developer of deception detection video games. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, we've done two games so far. One is called Macbeth, which is really a game about cognitive bias. One of the reasons why it's difficult for us to detect deception is because we have biases that get in the way. One called the truth bias, which is the assumption that people are telling the truth, and we overlook evidence that they might be lying when we Um, think that they're telling the truth. Another is called confirmation bias, which means we agree with, we believe things that agree with our pre-existing attitudes. So if I think that somebody is a truthful person, then I judge them truthful even when they're not being truthful. But if I think they're a liar, then I judge everything they say as lies, even when they're telling the truth. And that makes it harder for us to distinguish real lies from the truth. And so if you can train people about their biases, then they get better at detecting deception. The second game that we developed is called Veritas, which is a deception detection training game. You go through a couple of different scenarios, a job interview scenario where a person's lied on their resume, and a workplace theft scenario where somebody's stolen something from your place of work and you're trying to figure out what they know. And both those scenarios are kind of everyday things that people can relate to, and you can practice, you know, trying to figure out what the lie is and what the truth is in the game. Why video games? Because video games are a non-threatening way to teach people about something that is hard to teach. So when people have a lot of 
you know, misconceptions or pre-existing attitudes. Telling them that they're wrong doesn't go over very well. People don't like hearing that they're wrong. But kind of showing them that they're wrong, busting the myths, uh, can often you know, kind of ease the pain a little bit and make people more open to learning something new if you um, make the training itself a little bit more enjoyable. Do you have any more like similar games you're developing? Those are the only two that we've developed. We're working now on a project with a card game called Mafia. It's a party game that people play all the time. Some people call it Werewolf. It's got different names, but it's a game where there are liars and truth tellers in the game. And we're interested in figuring out how people earn each other's trust. How do people figure out who the liars are in the group and how do people figure out who to trust and who not to trust? And so it's not really a game we've developed, but we did develop like a computer-based app that you can track all the different decisions that people make in the game and try and figure out how how they're learning and how they're deciding who's truthful and who's not. Did you choose to focus on a card game for similar reasons as to the video games? We wanted a game that was pretty easy to learn. So one lesson that we learned from Macbeth, Macbeth had a steep learning curve, and it took a while for people to kind of figure out the game, how the controls work, and what all the choices are that they had to make. But once they figured it out, they thought it was fun. Veritas, we made a lot simpler, a much easier game, and Macbeth And Mafia is a game that a lot of people already play. So in our study, I think at least half had already played the game before. And uh, it's a lot easier to use games when they when when you're trying to train people to do something, if they're spending all their cognitive effort to learn the game itself, they're not really learning the training that you're trying to get them to learn. So you have a very impressive list of grants and awards that you've won to do this kind of research. Can you tell me about your process? So most of my work is funded by the federal government, either Department of Defense or the Intelligence Community or the National Science Foundation. And um, it's kind of a process of both figuring out what the government funders would like to see us do and figuring out what the right outlet is for funding our research. So we have research we think is important and that we want to do and figuring out kind of who the who are the right people that might also be interested in that work and then uh, also, who you know? What are they after? What are that? What questions do they have that you can kind of help them understand? So, what would be your dream project to work on? Hmm. Well, Veritas was a very small game. Only the two scenarios that I mentioned. I would really like to build that game out and have more scenarios so that you could have like a teacher trying to figure out if a student cheated on a test, or a doctor trying to figure out if a if a patient is lying about their need for opioids. If we could develop the game and to have multiple scenarios that you could really tailor the game for any audience, that is what I would like to keep working on. We have to get more funding. We tried to get it for the medical um, scenario. We didn't get the funding that we applied for, but that's still kind of in the back of my mind that we have a really good training mechanism that I think could be used to train in a lot of different fields, I don't think. I've been always working with law enforcement or the intelligence community, but I think there's a lot of areas of our lives where understanding deception better would be really useful. So what is something that you've come across in your research that has surprised you? Hmm. I guess the pervasiveness of the myths has really shocked me, because I guess when I first started 20-some-odd years ago, I had this idea that, you know, once people found out the truth, you know, what the reality is about deception, then all the myths about eye contact and fidgeting would kind of go away. But it hasn't happened at all. In fact, we've been studying deception for longer than the 20 years I've been doing it. And the research has been out there, but the message hasn't gotten to the public. 
And that's the part that kind of surprised me, that the myths about deception are so ingrained in us. The idea that liars look away and don't make eye contact. That's a myth. That isn't true at all. Uh, In fact, liars sometimes will make more eye contact. They'll look you right in the eye because they're trying to look credible. They're trying to make sure that you believe them. And so trying to figure out how to, you know, kind of combat those myths. I feel like I need a TV show like those Mythbuster guys, right? All about deception. Maybe it would be a short season. (laughs) I would watch it. (laughs) But I feel like there's a lot of information that the public needs and they don't get. And on top of the myths, I think there's also uh, what we call pseudoscience, which are false claims that, you know, people put out a book or they write articles for the New York Times or they find, you know, prestigious looking outlets for their work. And what they're saying just isn't backed up by science. And I feel like it's a hard, it's like a moving target, right? You're always trying to combat these things, but there's only so much that you can do. And so the pervasiveness of pseudoscience and the unwillingness of the public to let go of their myths, that's been a surprise for me. Where do you think your field is going in the next five to 10 years? And where do you think your own research is going? So I think a lot of people in my field, so, you know, we, for decades, we've spent time doing our research in our labs, publishing it in our journals. And I think a lot of academics are waking up to the idea that the general public doesn't read those. So there's a big push toward open access to give the public more access to scientific journals, because right now a lot of them are hidden behind paywalls. And also um, there's a big push toward making research more public, writing it in a way that the public can understand as opposed to just scientific gobbledygook that is incomprehensible to the average person. So one thing that I've done recently is I co-authored an article with a graduate student at um, the University of Montreal named Vincent Deneau. And he he spearheaded this effort to write an article kind of debunking three programs of study that are really just garbage, right? He got 51 academics to sign on to his article to support it. And it's being published in French and English and Spanish, three different languages in two different journals. And it's all about pseudoscience and the problem that we have with false claims in the area of deception detection. And it's the first time I've really seen a big effort like this, like 50 authors on this article all supporting his effort to try and stamp out pseudoscience. And I think, like I said, the scientific community is finally waking up and realizing that we have an obligation to educate the public and not just continue our small research projects, publish them in our academic journals, and assume that the word will get out. You mentioned that huge community. What scholars do you look up to? Like, what scholars are the most prominent in the field? In the area of deception detection, other than my dissertation advisor, Judy Bergoon, who I still collaborate with and work with, she's definitely been a lifelong mentor for me, and um, and I've studied under her for a long time. Uh, I think there's a number of scholars that are really spearheading important new innovations in the area of deception detection. One is Aldred Vry, who's at the University of Portsmouth in the British in uh, in Great Britain. And he's uh, interested in um, cognitive load. How can we um, look at the fact that liars are under greater cognitive load and make their lies more apparent to us? There's also people like Jeff Hancock, who are, who, he's at Stanford University, and he's doing important work on linguistics. So he's using computer algorithms to figure out the word choices that people use that are differently. He's done a couple of really interesting studies on um, fabricated research, where um, people try and publish or do publish um, fabricated uh, research articles 
uh, and he can spot differences between a fabricated article and article based on real scientific data, and just based on the linguistic choices that the authors make. The other thing that I think that's really important that Judy Ragoon and her colleagues at Arizona are doing is um, fusing sensors together. Um, we're doing research with computer scientists and, and people in management information systems, um, linguistics, all kinds of different fields coming together to try and do like multi-sensor, multi-channel kind of deception detection. I think really that's the future of where we're going. So it's really interdisciplinary. Absolutely. has to be because just looking at one cue at a time, so just looking at facial expressions by themselves or just listening to the voice or just watching the hand gestures, these individually are not enough to detect deception. And we need to put multiple cues together and then we'll really have a better chance at, at catching liars. So take your video game development, for example. How many disciplines and fields did you work across in that project? Several. So the video game developers themselves were mostly engineers and computer scientists. But we also had people from psychology and um, linguistics and communication, management information systems. Several fields came together to try and figure it out. And in the games, we really, especially the Veritas game, we really emphasize that there's no one cue that you can look at and detect a liar, right? There's no Pinocchio's nose. So trying to figure out uh, what cues can really be used together, looking for general patterns or clusters, I call them, of cues is really the way to detect deception. So the three clusters that Veritas teaches people about are uncertainty, tension, and cognitive load. So trying to find evidence of those, if you look for those general patterns, you'll be more successful than if you try and look at individual cues like raising eyebrows or looking up or things like that. So what are you working on right now? Right now, we're working on the Mafia project with the card game where we've collected data in uh, six countries because it's really a cross-cultural study of trust. How do people figure out who's trustworthy and who's not? And does it look the same across cultures? I'm really interested in, for example, in the study of dominance. So a lot of times liars will be more dominant because they're trying to look more credible. But that might be culturally sensitive. So some cultures, you know, liars might be um, more likely to kind of step back and let the other person do all the talking and act more submissive in order to kind of take attention away from themselves. And so how does dominance relate to um, trust and detecting deception? That's what we're working on now. What advice would you give students who are looking to get into your field and pursue that kind of study? I guess I would say that I feel like it's a very interdisciplinary form of study. So you can get your degree in whatever field that you're studying, psychology, communication, linguistics, whatever, but be open to reading the research of people from other disciplines. What I found is that interdisciplinary teams sometimes struggle with how to communicate with each other, right? They might use different words for the same thing. So for example, we were writing a grant with some computer scientists once, and the grant asked us to talk about the model or theory that guides our research. And in my world, a model is like your theoretical um, background that kind of gives you the idea of what variables to take into account. But in computer science, a model is an algorithm. And so what does the word model mean? We spent days trying to figure out what were they trying to get us to write about in that section on the grant. And so you can have frustrating experiences when you're trying to work in interdisciplinary teams. But I think to solve a big problem, you really need a big solution. You can't just work in your own disciplinary silo and expect to come up with the answer. Thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to. 
And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of Conversations at the Cohen Center. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at JMU Cohen Center. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at cohencenter at jmu.edu. Our intro and outro music come from Phase 3 by Zylo Zico. You can find out more about them at freemusicarchive.org.